Today I'm going to have a chat with Rachel Willis Sorensen. She's an amazing soprano, one of the world's leading sopranos at this time. She has an amazing voice. She's so versatile from Mozart to Wagner, sings everything, including a lot of Verdi. And she has sung pretty much at every major opera house. She does a lot in Europe, Opera du Paris, Wiener Staatsoper, Bayerische Staatsoper, and all these wonderful houses. And singing all these roles all over the place while being a mom of three children. And I can't wait for you to listen to this interview because I had such a fun and great time with her. So Rachel, it's awesome that you're here. You are a beautiful person inside and out. Thank I, you. I've watched your videos and I've watched interviews and I love how you are just so open to sharing the entire journey and all the things that you go through, all the things that you love and maybe sometimes the things that are a little bit more difficult. We do have a few things in common. Okay, so one thing is we both have three kids, two of which are twins. Oh my gosh, you're a unicorn. Nice to meet you. I'm a twin, a twin mother. Also. How old are your kids? The twins are just about to turn two in January. It's going to get better. It's yes, going to get easier. Yes. And I'm a single mom. So it's been a struggle. Oh my gosh, same. I'm a single mom too. That's a yeah. lot. That's a and lot, you have, yes. but you have this massive YouTube channel, like Brava. That's very impressive. I don't know how you're managing it all. With two-year-old twins, how old is your other one? 11. So she's a great help. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. What are your twins? Boy, girl. Boy, girl. Oh, okay, cool. Are yours identical? No, fraternal, but both boys. So my older one is 10 and my twins are eight. So that was a psycho because I had three kids. I went from zero to three kids within 21 months. I, I mean, it's a fate I don't think I would wish on another person, but I love them so much. Obviously, I'm thrilled that they exist. I would, it's like, it's funny you think about it. Which one would you give away? Like, no, I love them. No. I, our life worked out exactly the way it was supposed to, you know. But that's a very cool thing to have in common. That's even just that. But the fact that we're both singers, we're both very interested in singing. We promote singing on the internet. This is true. Our Venn diagram is like a circle. <laughs> it's like a circle. I would be interested to know how do you manage? Because this is part of the reason why I left the opera world. It wasn't for me because of the lifestyle. And I had some really bad experience in productions, which really crossed over my personal boundaries with directors wanting stuff from me that I'm like, I'm so uncomfortable. And that's, it's really unfortunate because it made me just, I was like, I love the music. I love performing, but that crossed so over the line. I felt so vulnerable and I just didn't want to be there anymore. I cried a lot. And I, you know, I had one production in particular where they almost kind of threw me out because I had my attitude was not good because I was like, that director just crossed over all these boundaries for me, like personal space and doing things. And I'm like, this is not okay, just because you're the director and I'm the singer. But I would just love to know, how do you balance? I don't know if there's such a thing as balance. But how do you manage <laughs> being a mom and traveling so much like when do you see your kids and like how how mm. does that all work i know that there's not always production but you do a lot i've been following you and you, you're like, i do a lot all over the place. i do a lot well they so my children are now we live in denmark and that is a very important thing i work more in europe than anywhere else and so denmark copenhagen turns out to have a very good airport so it's like if i even sometimes i've gone home for one day for like a few hours it's not easy i'm not gonna lie the, the schematic that I have established is that every day, so 24% of the calendar year, they are free from school for like longer than a normal weekend. I get them all those times. We, every other Christmas, I, I we trade Christmases, my ex-husband and myself, but then I have them every other Christmas and all the school holidays. And then I go to them in Denmark whenever I can between contracts. So ideally it's 50% of the time. It, what it shakes out probably more to be like 40% of the time. And that's heartbreaking. But luckily, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of, a couple of different child psychologists and it's like not the quantity of time that matters so much as the quality of time. Like if you're just on your phone, you can be with your children 24 hours a day and not be establishing 
the level of connection that it, they would need in order to weather life's difficult storms. So in the limited amount of time I have with them, I'm very intense. We're very intense. And what helped me a lot was to realize that nothing is ever going to compromise this bond that I have to them. I, I've worked very hard to establish it. They were with me all the time on the road until they were all three school aged, which means two years ago this fall, they began school. That transition I thought would kill me. Like it was so stressful. I was crying all the time and I hated every production I did. I hated them worse than normal because all of a sudden it was like, what am I sacrificing? But in my case, like I have to be the financial support. I, I don't have like a huge, I mean, I love doing it. I do choose to do it. Obviously it's like, the, it's my dream job to be an opera singer, but it's also the way my, it's my most lucrative possible profession. It's like, I'm not, it wouldn't be possible for me to earn enough money to support them probably if I shifted gears to a different profession at this point. So in that way, I comfort myself knowing even if I'm on the road away from them, thank goodness there's FaceTime. We can FaceTime every day. And this does a lot of work for me, but also I'm paying for their life. They're going to be able to go to college. They're going to have everything that they're going to have their basic needs met because I'm providing for them financially. So the hardest battle I would say is the mom guilt, the like the sick gut feeling like I'm, I've chosen wrong. I mean, I compare myself and particularly in the first, I would say until even recently, this was such a struggle for me because both of my sisters and my mother are stay at home moms. And it was always kind of like this expectation that I would do that. But I also struggle because I have this deep need to be a singer. I mean, having these conflicting stewardships in my life, like I love my children more than anything else. I also had to realize that if I sacrificed my career to be with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, first of all, I don't think that's even as good for them as I would have told myself. But also no matter what I say, I would probably quietly have experienced a great deal of resentment. And that is too much pressure to put on a kid where you say, okay, I gave it all up for you. Now you owe me, you owe me my life's fulfillment. So in a different way, I had to come to terms with the idea that my living my dream is a way of showing them how to be happy grownups. That's really my obligation to them. It's not to, to die and bleed out for them. That's what you think. We are, that's what I thought. When I had the babies, I was like, I would, if it gave you the slightest advantage in your life, I would throw my body in front of a bus. Like I would, you know, and it's funny. I heard this quote. It's, it's almost easy as a parent to say, I would die for my children, but would you live for them? This is the thing. Like, I don't think it's our job as parents to die for our children. It's our job to teach them how to be happy adults. So the only way you can do that, you, you can say whatever you say, right? But the only real way is to figure that out for yourself and you model it and you love them and you invite them into your happy sphere. And you say, look, when I engage my faculties, when I engage myself and I choose things for myself, this is the outcome. I feel autonomous. I feel powerful. I feel empowered to make the choices in my life. So that's my parental aesthetic now. I'm there for them to a fault. They can talk to me about anything. We have a completely tight bonded relationship and I am not with them 100% of the time, which is heartbreaking. But also, I'm so sorry. I'm <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Go ahead. <laughs> this one other thing is that nobody gets a perfect life. Like nobody, you know, you think, when you have a baby, I'm gonna I'm gonna give them a perfect life. I'm gonna stop being imperfect. Like, look, I have this baby. I'm never gonna yell again. Oh. You know, I'm gonna lose a hundred pounds. I'm gonna only eat broccoli. Like, whatever stupid nonsense you tell yourself. Like, I can because I love this baby so much. I'm gonna be able to conquer all of my shadow side. Like, that's definitely what I was thinking. But then it doesn't work like that. Your love can be enormous, and you're still a human being, and you're still going through the process of humanity, which means everything is like tiny step. Progress is slow. You love them. You have to learn to love yourself. That's the real difficult part of the game because yeah, it's way easier to feel shame than generosity for yourself. But if you learn to love yourself, you also realize that the difficulties in your life are a part of your learning journey. So you can't prevent your children from never 
you can't prevent them from ever experiencing challenges that would lose them the opportunities they need to develop your friction that you've had in your life the hardships dealing with that that director who crossed all your boundaries that firmed the boundary for you and you made choices about your life based on those experiences we need adverse experiences as a part of our the tapestry of our lives in order to develop what we need to develop so as a parent it's so hard to accept that like my children are going to suffer hardships they're going to probably be bullied or be bullies themselves or i don't i mean they're going to go through stuff that's that's what life is you want to intervene you want to stop all the pain but ultimately realizing that's not even good for them that's an that's an important part of the journey so that is my long ted talk about being a parent and living on the road. Thank you for listening. <laughs> How do you do it? You know, I totally get it. And that's, you know, when, when you have your first child, you kind of want to do everything perfectly. And you really, you start out on that way. You know, it's like, okay, only the healthy food. I only cooked fresh stuff every single day. And I made the decision before I had my older daughter to leave the world of more public singing. And I just did freelance but I was out a lot and I was in this dilemma because I had my daughter all by myself. And then like her dad basically kind of left me hanging. I found myself in this situation of having to shift gears because I'm like, I can't do gigs. Like how, like if someone isn't here to watch, I mean, I had a poor thing. I felt so sorry for her. Sometimes I felt so guilty. I was literally breastfeeding her under a cover while rehearsing with an orchestra. And I was like her ears, she's like, I'm singing so loud. You know, it's like, it's not soft singing when you do opera or classical. Oh, she's fine. She is fine. But I was like, I felt so guilty. I'm like, and I had her with me with rehearsals for musical theater shows that I directed and all. And I was like, I have to shift. And then I found myself in this really horrible financial place. And that's when I started like, I'm changing. And that's when I started my YouTube channel. I'm like, I have something to teach. I know something about singing. And at first I felt total imposter syndrome. I'm like, is that BS what I'm talking about? It was so hard to be in the role of the teacher, although I had been teaching for years, but I was like, I don't know, do people like this? I wanted to say really quick about the imposter syndrome about teaching singing on the internet. I had this too. When I started working with my press agent in November, 2018, so exactly five years ago, she said, let's make a video. You can talk about doing color tour. And I'm like, what am I, the poster child of color tour? I hate doing that. Like, I'm not going to talk about that. And then she was like, well, just say what you do. And it was really hard because I thought in order to put this information out there, am I claiming to be some sort of expert? But I realized something important. No, I'm not. Because if it works for people, if you're giving free advice on the internet and it doesn't work for people, like, okay, they find what works for you. Ultimately, everyone is responsible for their own singing. What I can do, what you can do, and in what way you are an absolute not, you're not an imposter because you just talk about what works for you. Exactly. At first, I was disclaiming all the time. I was like, um, so like, coloratura is scary and hard, and this is how I do it. But the funny thing is how many people were like, oh, that opens a new door to me. So then I realized, oh, Maybe they're, maybe the charlatan idea that some voice teachers have that they are in possession of all knowledge is about a different psychological thing than promoting good singing. Maybe it's about self-aggrandizement, which has never been my beef. I'm not into that. I Every student that I've ever had, I have said to them, like, I'm happy to help you. You're responsible for your own singing in the end. Like, you have all the tools already in your toolbox you just have to find them I'm happy to support you in this process but like the teachers who say you're an empty vessel like back your dump truck into my bay and I will fill it with my superior knowledge and eventually you can this is not true this is just this weird ego thing I don't think it's uh healthy so but some people love that and good for them if you it's like sometimes you take lessons I'm sure you had this experience too when you were learning your technique like you probably, I had so many different teachers for like brief periods in time. When I was a young artist, I took like a single voice lesson from something like 20 teachers. And very often I heard things that were not good for me. And it was almost like establishing the boundaries. Like, oh, okay, well that doesn't work. Ooh, you know, like, sometimes you can you take the best from all of yeah. it. You just kind of sift it out and be like, okay, this was great here. This I'm going to leave out and I'm going to take this, but I'm going to forget that part. Yeah. 
So you can't feel responsible for other people's like development of technique. That's totally on them, particularly if you're on the internet. But I respect so much what you're doing, just going online and talking about what works for you. You're not representing yourself like, hey, excuse me, perfect stranger. I'm the authority in your body and your voice, right? It seems like inherently that would be the issue. If you're saying that, yeah, you're an imposter because only an individual is the, the expert in their own body and their own voice. But offering advice about what has been helpful for you, I think that's a beautiful, generous thing to do. And I have loved doing that myself. You're doing it in a way bigger way. Like, it's so impressive. The community that you've built with YouTube, it's incredibly impressive. In fact, like the idea that there are that many people who are so interested in singing technique, that like makes, that moves me, you know? I have my little, my little pool on Instagram and I love, I love that community that I've developed reaching out to those people, hearing what works for them. And the number of people who come now to my performances, there is always someone at the stage door saying, oh my gosh, I love you from Instagram. One time a girl, a, a woman came from all the way from Norway to Vienna. And she said, I've never been to the opera before, but I found you on Instagram. So I decided to fly to Vienna to hear you sing. <laughs> and I thought that is so funny. Like what a weird and cool world we live in where like these the internet just gives you access to so much and then it opens doors. What would it, what would, what would we be like if had we been children, we had access to this resource? Mm -hmm. Like who knows? It's, it's almost, it's incredible to think about, but anyway, I love, I love what you're doing. I love that you're offering so generously of yourself and your time and your knowledge to young singers, to singers, singing interested people. I think that's really great. And you are by no means an imposter because you're just talking about what works for you. You know what I mean? Same as me. I'm sorry about what works for me. Sometimes what I found that's really surprising is like, I'll say something that I feel very passionately about. This is true. This is not debatable. And it turns out to be controversial. Like I made a video about tongue tension and I got a lot of pushback from people who really wanted to defend their tongue tension. Look, they can do that. You can sing that way. I'm never gonna respect that kind of singing. I'm never gonna agree with you that that's the best way of doing that. But ironically, what these, like it was just a small handful of people, but what they were saying in favor of tongue tension was utterly proving my point to myself. Yeah. So see, it's incredibly subjective. Yeah. So you just do, you just do what you do. You do, you choose what you like. Like you said, you pick the parts that, that, uh, that will help you and you use the, those ones. The thing is that, you know, like in singing, like I, there are a lot of, and you will probably attest to this. There are a lot of professional opera singers who I believe have problems. Uh, when I look Absolutely. at them, they have so much, like, I was very blessed to have a teacher that worked really well for me and like, it's always what you should sing versus, versus what you would like to sing. You know, I, I never wanted to be in this soubrette because I'm like, oh, but like the big voices and like the, the lyric lines, it's so awesome. Like, what about Traviata? I was like, this is never for me. I'm a soubrette, which probably contributed sometimes to the imposter thing. It's like an opera singer is supposed to have like this big gigantic voice, you know, listening to Kathleen Battle always helped me it was like okay she has this lighter beautiful bright voice this is okay this is beautiful i don't have to have this yeah. voice but what about the the self-image you know like everyone was born with an instrument you just have that instrument you can build it you can tweak it you can you can add resonance but basically you were born with a specific voice color and i know there are a lot of my students they are they have a problem with that because they're like i want to be that disney princess kind of voice and like you can sing those character pieces. You have a dark, um, mature sounding voice. You don't have that little girl voice, which not everyone needs to have that. But what do you say to someone who feels like, I don't know, I don't like my voice. Have you always liked your voice or did you have to work through some stuff where you're like, okay, I, I always thought my voice was great. I never really had a problem with that image. I knew I had limitations that I wanted to overcome and sounding better, but what do you say to someone who's like, it sounds horrible. I'm never going to get better because I don't sound like X, Y, Z. Oh, I'm finding, I'm really triggered by what you're saying. Like, because this is such a journey. And when, when I hear someone say that I want to do this, I want to make myself into someone else. It's so heartbreaking because the most beautiful part about singing, in my opinion, is that the greatest, most beautiful sounds you will ever make 
are the ones completely devoid of external tension. The ones that are actually honest and just you. So if someone says, I don't like that. I want to fake my voice to be someone else. You can do things with, with placement, with like mouth position to like affect a color one shade darker or lighter than what is whatever is most natural for you. But the point is, you're not an impersonator. You have to be yourself. And so what I've learned, the healthiest, best thinking I have ever done in my life is when I felt really safe to be myself. And I felt really a great, a high degree of self-acceptance. And somehow it's like an analogy. When you can't accept your voice, it's because you can't accept something about yourself. And a lot of people believe that if they berate themselves, if they're very critical, if they're even cruel toward themselves, this is the way to usher in positive change. That is not true. It's been studied. It's been debunked. The great, the birthplace of all positive change is self-acceptance. It's ironic. You, If you just say, well, this is what I am, then you can relax and, and then your body can really show you what it does. So the first step is trying to clear away the tension and then validating the instrument as it exists. So it's true. So when I was in the beginning, I wanted to be a coloratura so badly. I listened to every single recording of the doll song from the Tales of Hoffman. Yes. And I would sing it. And I could, I had, when I was very young, although now I'm nearly 40 and I have three children and I've lost my whistle tone. I can't access it in the same way suddenly. It's like an age thing. I can, I'm suddenly able to sing much lower. And my high is more stable than it used to be. But anyway, in the beginning, I had this like fake disembodied extra part of my voice, this extension very high. And I would sing all this color tourist stuff. And I thought like, that's what I am because that's what I want to be. But then when I, I remember someone cast me in college to sing the Countess and the Marriage of Figaro. And it's like noble and stable and boring. You're always in the middle voice. I was like, what is it? Where are the, where are the high Fs? Like I wanted to sing super high. And I remember my teacher saying, this is what you are. Like, this is what, and I was like, I'm boring. I I am a boring voice. I don't just sing like Lucia because I wanted to sing, you know, the like fifth element. So, I mean, and I sort of could do it, but it's, it was not my, it wasn't my native gift. You know this what I'm so saying? Interesting. It's almost like we always want to be what we're not because I want exactly. to be like you. I wanted to be like I, I I felt like it was, it was I too hard. I'm like I'm singing Rejoice Greatly. I'm like this is so much work, and I'm like this is too much work. Oh yeah, yeah, I wanna, yeah. I want to sing long lyric lines. Why why am I trying to do the sparkle? It's every time I can do it, but it's like it's so much work with my support. I'm like I just only afterward. I'm like I can't do it anymore. Or exactly because it's like it's that's what I'm saying. It's, it's it's like a lack of acknowledgement of what your gifts are. It's like saying. And, and I was thinking about this recently, that your gift will have a dark side. It's like, I am really tall, right? So when I'm on stage in the roles that have to have authority, like, for example, the Marshallin in Rose and Cavalier, mm -hmm. it is so easy for me. Or any, anything where I'm a queen, Elizabeth de Valois, I'm just tall. I don't have to do anything. I look authoritarian. I, I just look like stand and it's okay. <laughs> yes. And I, I generally want to eat the set. Like, I'm like, oh, I want to be so in the, you know, an act a lot. But I, what works for me better is to be noble and still. But the downside of this is that if it goes the wrong way, it, I can be like bossy or like sroppy. I remember one time I read in a review, sroppy soprano Rachel Sorensen. And I was like, what's sroppy? And I had to look it up. It means like, like a, just like an unlikable sort of domineering girl. Like a, a it's a, it's not, it's inelegant. So it's like, you have to know your type, you have to know, but it's also in your voice. So if you have a tendency to want something that you aren't, it's probably because you've had to endure the criticism of the other thing, right? So you're like, no, I'm going away from that. I have to self-reject in order to gain acceptance by the group. So something in you was like, I want this noble, whatever. Maybe because someone criticized something about you that you associated with the other thing. Also, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> Singing. <laughs> whatever, this takes a lot. It takes a lot out of a person. You know, you're actually, you're actually really right. Because for me, it was always, when I was a child, it was very hurt because my dad was an alcoholic and every single day I would cry. And I think I wanted to get away from this image of like a little child and like, you know, I wanted to be this grown up, strong 
person, I think. And that's why I always like, when I looked at the more, you know, Traviata lyric voices, I always thought, this is so great. It's like, for me, you know, as a soubrette, it's very easy to sing in the middle to high voice and have beautiful lines. But then of course, when you become like this coloratura, you also have to, you have to do that. It's like, it's your bread and butter. Yeah. I came to this place of, I think it was like toward the end of my college years. That's when I kind of started, my, my voice kind of started coming out. And I was like, oh, it's not just this, eh, 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 the screechiness on the top. Actually, now there's this resonance and, you know, I sang Gilda in Italy. And then like, I still wow. have recordings from that. And now when I'm listening, I'm like, that's when I started realizing that the brightness in the voice is the beauty of it. And the fast stuff is just part of it, but it doesn't have to be, you know, like the, there are still the lyric lines in there. So until I realized that uh, the lyric is actually part of that, especially as a soubrette, actually. It is brighter. It's not as dark and heavy. To be honest, like low pitches are a struggle, really. As, but as a soubrette, you have to go there to the low A sometimes and you're thinking, Mozart, what are you doing? Like, yeah. how can you go from the low A to a high C in, in one syllable? Who did you write this for? Yeah. It was that flexibility that I then started appreciating. I was like, oh, I yeah. can do that. And it's so easy for me. And I don't have to warm up for half an hour. I can warm up five minutes and my voice is there because it is light and bright and fast. Um, and that's when I was like, it's actually pretty cool. See, that's funny. I had the opposite experience. I was taught like, I remember if I think back on this, like what she was asking, now I now that I conceptualize the human instrument in such a different way, it was just a high larynx. But she wanted me, my first teacher wanted me to get like in the mask and like drive everything into the mask. It was, so it was really pushy and really high larynx. This is the kiss of death for anyone actually. But so when I found the depth in my voice, then I found the freedom. It's like I, instead of like this, I had to sing like this. Like it just relaxed, just a free larynx. But I was thinking, scoff is essentially irrelevant. In my opinion, like size of voice is such a trap. Yeah. Because if you get told one time as a young singer, which was the case for me, you have a big voice, then you're like, oh, you like that? Watch this. And you like way over sing, try to like underline something. But what you, so that's what I'm saying. It's not about size. It's not about fuck. It's about self-acceptance. It's about realizing what you are and within the confines of what you are being very relaxed, finding your own sound. In fact, there are no two identical voices on the planet. You are a unique voice, every single person. So yes, ideally you develop the technique to have the facility to move the voice freely in all registers on all vowels. Like your range is biological. What you're able, the pitches that you're able to make are biological, but there should be a significant range, like at least three octaves. And that's the thing I find also a lot of, so, so in my, the way that I conceptualize singing, what I figured out when I had like a click moment was if it feels the same in here, it sounds different out there. If it feels different in here, it sounds the same out there in terms of passaggio, right? So like the low pitches, I used to hold my head voice and bring it down, right? And then it sounds weird in the room and squash and quiet. Then I realized if I shift gears and sing the low pitches in a tall version of my chest voice, mm -hmm. I get a lot more sound. It doesn't cost me anything. I'm not pushing or driving. And this was a huge difference, difference for me. It was also kind of aged, like as I aged, it sort of relaxed into my chest voice. But most women are speaking in their chest voice. Yeah. So it's not like the chest voice doesn't exist. It's just most people singing classical don't know how to integrate it into their head voice because yeah. we predominantly focus in the top. But every, you're right, Mozart wrote low A's in soubrette repertoire. Everybody has to access Though the low A is not meant to be performed in pure pure head voice. You can't. That's weird. You can't. You have no grip. You have no power. It's it's, no, it's not biologically possible. You have to drop into a tall version of your chest voice in order to get down there. But also the the low notes support the uh, the upper middle. Like you, if you get your chest relaxed, you get a thread of sternum resonance, like tracheal resonance, all the way up to the top of your end. Your high is going to be way stronger. It's a weird phenomenon. But when I warm up, I always also warm down because huh, you need huh, to be able to get up without going, you know, in order to prevent anemic high notes, you have to have chest resonance all the way up. Even a coloratura, even on an F for Queen of the Night. It's like 
We all need these things. So it's it's funny because again, you're not it's fuck whatever it is, whatever you're singing, you're going to be required. Every singer is going to be required to sing florid passages, lyric passages, coloratura. Everybody has to move. Literally, Brunhilde has like trills written in there that are often not observed because the the prevailing notion is big voices don't move. Well, that's not true. Not true. No. You know, Birgit Nilsson could sing the second Queen of the Night aria after an entire evening of Brunhilde. She did it just as a party trip in her dressing room. There's all these people that witnessed it. I'm sure it wasn't like the greatest queen of the night that ever existed. She could get up there. But she said she had to sing Brunhilde first, by the way, which then it's like big question, like what is what is going on there? But anyway, the voices, big voices have to move and small voices have to have lyricism, legato. Like the freedom is the real key. Yeah. And freedom comes from self-acceptance. That, anyway, that's my opinion. So how much of, because we were just talking about connecting to your chest voice and I, I, that's what I teach. I teach everyone, you need to move, you need to really basically sing through both of your registers when you warm up on a regular basis, full range, yeah. um, not neglect any side. It's almost like you're, you know, those guys that work out only their upper body and then they have chicken legs. Um, that's kind of like that. Uh, you you want to be balanced. You want to move through the full range of all the the motion of the muscles that are involved. And I think you have a lot more options than where am I going to transition? How am I going to handle that phrase? Because it's not always the same. You can't say this is my transition point yeah. because it depends on the sound you want to create and the phrase wow. and the music and all the things. How does it flow? When do you breathe and all that stuff? But how much do you think? How much do you think you attribute? that skill that you have that it you know you have that access so well to your lower register to the fact that before you started classical singing you didn't do classical singing you know you i, I watched your interview when you talked about you kind of like had these teachers and you were like just belting your way out there and then you realize oh this is really actually maybe not a healthy way to do it you kind of started yeah. classical a little later and it was which was like me i started classical it was kind of like a coincidence i started in college i'm like oh let's just major in voice and then it's like oh you're actually really good i'm like oh really now i'm gonna be an opera singer it was really unreal oh, me? suddenly i'm winning <laughs> competitions against younger uh, older classmates because i was like already older Well, probably if you came from a more contemporary tradition, you had a lot of charm. This is, to, to my thinking, what's missing in the classical teaching is charm. It's like if you do Broadway or jazz, jazz can give you a flexibility and musicality and musicianship. Pop music can give you charm. Broadway can give you charm. You can access your charisma. You need that. But they don't talk about that in classical. You just like you you have to figure that out on your own. So I think definitely that. But really, yes, definitely singing in my chest voice to sing pop music and to sing like, I don't know, gospel and whatever I was trying to sing when I was young. That gave me some facility in the chest register. But honestly, it's speaking, like because I I I still sing for fun sometimes, but I don't, it's not like very common that I perform contemporary styles now but I still utilize my chest force for speaking and basically I never shut up so it's like you know what I mean it's always these muscles are warm I don't think yeah and this is this drives me crazy about women singers generally it's like they will come in and talk to you and say hi my name is Michelle whatever I'm from this place I'm gonna sing this and then they're like oh, it's and they don't even they don't even the, it's like the bottom of their larynx is like it's just up They don't relax. I I remember when I was like, how old? 25, maybe? I was singing the Compromario. What's her name? In Lucia, the like maid. Aliza, I think is her name. Mm -hmm. And there's like a sextet and you have to sing on the bottom of the treble clef, which is essentially the break of a soprano. Like the E, F, this area where your voice like really should probably go into your head voice. And I, it was all there. And it was like, And I remember I thought, I'm so quiet. I'm never going to be heard. So I pushed my head voice. And I, I like, it was so straight tone. It was so held. It was so tense. And I did this and I was trying to be really loud. And it's really funny if I look at it now, like had I just relaxed into my, a tall, this is the key. You can do a splatty, vulgar chest voice 
which is appropriate for some styles and is not appropriate for classical singing. Mm -hmm. So in classical singing, you need a chest voice that accommodates a lift into the head voice. That means it has to be tall inside. So you're going, then I can go right up. Exactly. Because it's tall. Different space, yeah. Yeah, but it is chest voice. It's not that I'm singing in my head voice down. You see what I said? Anyway, I, this I, I have videos about that chest voice for um, sopranos because you have to connect ah. to the sound of your head voice. You don't want it to sound yeah. Like, you oh, want to and then suddenly sound like a honker. As a soprano, also, you don't want to be too dark. You have to be really careful about using your chest voice because you want to connect it to the rest of the sound. It yes, exactly. It has to be. Yeah. But you need a chest and you need it to be seamlessly. But the funny thing is, so chest voice feels different than head voice. Mm -hmm. But we actually will hear the same like resonance structure in your head if you sing in chest voice and head voice. Like it's identifiable as the same instrument to yes. us outside of you. Whereas if you sing your chest voice up high, sounds like a different voice. Your head voice down low sounds like a different voice. It's like two it's weird because you're using the same muscles, but because they weren't meant to do that part of your, your range, you sound suddenly like two different people. So actually a seamless transition is from using both and what is called mix, which I think is just tall. Yeah. It's just it's like, just, you, it's you, just a balancing out between, you know, in the passage yeah. to where it sounds. Yeah. 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 I, I like mix is not a register. I always try to like, what is mix? I know, what it's does that mean? Pain. Are you using both muscle groups, the thyroid and the cricothyroid? Like, it's just funny. I think, anyway. Anyway, the thing that makes the color of your sound isn't the muscles, it's the, the space. Yeah. It's the structures, the the resonance spaces. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm geeking out hardcore right now, but no, it's like- this is good, this is great. My <laughs> audience loves that. Oh, me too. Yeah. I. Because I sing both pop and classical, I always try to establish like you, I believe that you can, unless you are really like, I remember when I was singing full-time opera, I couldn't go there easily because I was so in the head voice space. So I couldn't belt up how high. When I started singing with bands a lot, after I kind of removed myself from the opera space, I gained so much range on my chest voice on the top because I kept using it all the time. But I have to say, I always sang in a healthy way. I never, I feel like in comparison to some other of my colleagues, which don't have that foundation of a really solid technique because they just know how to sing and they just do it. And, you know, there are a lot of very famous singers who are lovely. They have amazing voices, but they kill their voices. There are yeah. singers who kill their voices also. Um, they have been trained, yeah, but true. obviously aren't using utilizing the right technique for their voice. And that's, there's something to be said about, like no. I said, you have to kind of find out what works for your voice, but minimizing tension to make, again, working on resonance instead of trying to power through to where there is an ease that eventually happens. That doesn't mean it's a hard, it's not hard work. It is hard work from below, but it's never hard work here. No, yeah, yeah. It's like, we don't even sing in here. Like this is vibrating fine, but you're not, this isn't working. This is yeah. not, this isn't a coma. That's what I told myself in the beginning. Oh, oh, my larynx is in a coma. She's like, you yeah. know, she's relax. just. And I always relax. talk about relaxed larynx because a lot of people are like are so much about this low larynx, low larynx. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it needs to move. That can go too far. You can swallow yeah, you it. You can move it. You should be able, it should be moving freely. Flexible. Maybe when you yeah. go high, it does go lower naturally, but pushing a low larynx toward the middle already it just kills you i feel like it's 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 so, dark do you remember the first time you learned about soft palate because i remember i depressed my larynx so hard i was like soft palate. Oh, i, just I thought so it was sad. the larynx yeah but oh it's a soft palate oh that is giving me space really but it's so funny because it's really it's really minimal the difference when with a raised soft palate versus a collapsed soft palate i mean it makes a big difference in the sound but i think physiologically the gesture is so small that it's not it's not a matter of like a big musculature intervention, but it's anyway, singing is complex. And yeah, you, this, the muscles are only semi-voluntary. I think most people don't ever in their whole lives gain conscious control of those intricate muscles. Yeah. So it's funny when we, you're asking singers, if you're teaching them, you're asking them to get really sensitive about these tiny, tiny muscles. And often you can't, you can't just say, oh, you have alveolar ridge tension. You have to go, oh, you're singing, I hear this. Ooh, and I want to hear this. 
Ah, see the difference? Ooh, oh, ooh, ah. Okay, so often I tell people, for example, because that I find to be a very common tension within classical singing, because it's like your body is imitating classical singing. So it's like, and I hear it a lot for, even from colleagues, like on in big high level opera companies, but they get hired and that must be a nightmare because this is what I'm talking about. There's no self-acceptance. If you're saying I have to affect tension in order to be hired here, it's like, there's no self-acceptance. Mm -hmm. That is heartbreaking. That poor person. And they, what do they think? Are they like, I figured out how to do it. All I do is go with this. That is not their voice. That it's is like some other thing. To have more volume and size, but not really. Color, it's not, it's not real. Tones. Right. In fact, it's compromising overtones. We're not seeing who they are. We're seeing a counterfeit version of them. And it's even it can be nice. I mean, look, I'd rather have a bad singer than no opera. Like I love opera. I love it. I love the story. Plus, I mean, if we're we're talking about singing, that is one element. But like I said, if you started with Broadway, with jazz, with whatever other things, you probably have access to your charisma. That's so important. Watching a singer and like yearning for them to do have a good life and do a good job. That like when we're on a singer's side, it's partially because they're able to expose the charisma. They're like showing you their soul. You know what I mean? That's so important. Probably can't even be taught. But that's if a singer is not singing great, but they have that, I'm still going to love them. I'm going to love watching them. Here's a question for you. I feel like, especially when it comes to acting and accessing the connection to the music and interpreting, I think a lot of it, yeah. there, it's very connected to your personality. So I'm naturally, in the past, on stage, you change and you become seemingly extroverted doesn't have to be that you are literally extroverted uh, you learn how to be on stage but for me it was really hard because I'm actually way back in time as a child I was more timid and I was very you know I didn't really speak up and all and you know in college and we are like how to act and be in front of people the singing part was actually for me always the easy thing it's like if you if I could just stand there and sing and not worry about what to do and then that was the hard thing but like how easy was it for you to access the acting and the connecting to the music as you're in front of people because we do we all connect to the music when we're kind of on our own and we enjoy it but then performing in front of people is a whole different thing and you know in the beginning probably everyone has these moments where you feel like i feel awkward what am i supposed to do with my arms and my hands and like what do people what, what, love? Are, these? what are these things yeah i know it's like and then you're like kind of paralyzed but how easy was it for you to access the the connection like with acting and being the character and performing in front of you uh, in front of people and how do you think is that how is it connected to your personality the ugly truth is that i used to absolutely hate myself and so acting was great because i felt like i could escape I, I remember a time when someone asked me where do you feel most at home and i said on stage because it was the only place i allowed myself to exist because it was like safe it was in the in the in the safety like it's like a fugue state like in the safety of a character i just throw myself in i could i could give myself the freedom to think and feel without any gaslighting just like this what would this character what is this character doing like how is it that their feelings which are prescribed by a librettist and a composer how are those feelings logical what is the logical storyline whereas in my own life i was like you shut up. You should always be happy. You're not entitled to your feelings, your experiences. Like I was so ugly with myself. And so I needed the escape. I really thought like, and it's, I, I look at that, like, gosh, that's, I haven't really thought about it like that until I'm talking to you right now, but that's a thousand percent true for me. It's recent. It's only recent that I'm able to say, I feel at home as at home in my body in, in Rachel, as I would, for example, in Rusalka or Violetta, like I loved escaping into those characters because I didn't judge them the way I judged myself. But I've had to go some therapy and go through some difficult things and approach the challenges of my childhood and my like self, whatever, my life experiences. And I've had to try to integrate myself. And now I would say I feel as comfortable being on stage, being just myself, like in a concert setting or recital as I do in a, in a character. Maybe even more so, actually, for the first time in my life, I think I can say I feel more comfortable being Rachel than being some character. But it's because of this. That's what I'm saying. The birthplace of all growth is self-acceptance. 
But when I didn't have that, I loved, I mean, and in a way, and even that I should almost be grateful because it's the gift of that darkness was that I was able to access these characters easily. And I found like the non-judgment of the character to be the answer to portraying that character with like a genuine, sincere sort of element. Because I just thought like, well, what would this, I thought if I'm a person that exists in this time, whatever, if I'm, what would Rachel, what would be the circumstances of my life that I would come to those same emotional conclusions? And then I would just sort of imagine it and I would allow it to transpire. And being present with prescriptive music is, is a big part of the challenge. But if you're able to do it, you win the game. If you're saying to the audience, like, how many times has that audience heard whatever, La Traviata has been played nine squillion times, right? But if I'm doing it, I'm trying to do it for the first time. Every time. I'm trying to do it like, this is the first time in history that these words have ever been said in this order, in this order. And I'm saying it like it's coming out of me, you know? What are, how did I get here? So that really helped me. But I would say like art and theater as therapy is very real in my case because yeah, there's like so much less pressure put on a character than I put on my actual self. But luckily, <laughs> luckily I've, I'm shifting toward a more like healthy version of myself in the world. And so I don't, I don't really have this phenomenon as much, but like I would say five, 10 years ago, I was running, fleeing desperately into those characters and so grateful for the opportunity to exist without so much pressure. Yeah, it's like, I feel like when you play a character and when you sing a character, what you said really is so true because when you play a character, you can't be judgmental in a way of like, oh, this is like a bad person. Even the bad person, really their agenda is they think it's the best, right? They, they are acting with what they think this is right. This is the way to do it. So putting yourself in the shoes of all these characters, whatever they be, right? So whether the publicly they may be viewed as this is the noble thing and this is the evil thing, but at, when you're playing the character, you can't judge it in that way. You have to be convincing because if you think I'm the evil one, you're just putting on a game you're not really embodying the character because you know there's a difference yes. acting yeah. it, acting it you know and yeah. being it um so it is like you said it is a way of therapy because you have to start to learn like maybe there's even something good in all of that and maybe i could absolutely perspective and understand how a person coming from those circumstances with all the things that happened could end up taking these actions yes absolutely and don't isn't it beautiful also about it the opportunity to cultivate a wider compassion for the world at large for all the people you're interacting with Understand this you. is what yes this is what really surprises me about my profession that now you know the more i do it the more i look around at people and i think like we're all just doing our best like everyone you look at even sometimes I, i'm like why would you behave that way like for example, look, you're driving and someone cuts you off in traffic. You know, it's very easy to just be like, what a jerk, you know, they're so selfish, but you don't know, like maybe they have diarrhea. Like, you know what I mean? There's like, oh, exactly. now that I have to think about different people and what they're, why, why they're doing what they're doing. It's stupid. It doesn't work to just say like, oh, well, they're an idiot. Like they just don't, that's not true. They have a, they have a logic that's contriving the way they're behaving. Like people are the sum total of their experiences. They go, there's like a logical flow of events that leads everyone to where they are. Even crazy people think, you know, they think away. If you could get inside it, if you could see, these are the steps. So anyway, that to me is compassion. That is like generosity and compassion toward your fellow men. And for me, that is kind of the purpose of art. I want to open that in myself and I want to open that into the people who hear me sing I want them to look at that and be like oh yeah we're all just people that person who hurt me who I've I've cherished a vendetta against for years or whatever it turns out they were just a person doing their best I don't agree with their decisions but I but I'm able to release it because it's not about me it's about them see what I'm saying it's like this makes the world better this heals the pains and this is the experience that I certainly have as an attendee. When I go to the opera or the theater or a concert, music music can go inside you and like 
heal you. But I think only if it's, excuse me, not only, it does it the best when it's not coming from an ego space, it's coming from a place of generosity, understanding and sincerity. So those are like really important qualities for me. And I'm always trying to like, how do I get there? Like if I meditate, if I like focus, and then I'm, I have this thing, I started doing it this summer and it was so beautiful. Like I imagine I'm breathing in these like roots of golden light from the earth into my feet. And I'm like, project. it's this whole image that I have that it really helps me be relaxed and focused. And then when I go and sing, it's like, I'm thinking, I'm going to give you all the golden light that I pulled into my heart. Now I'm going to, now I'm going to invite you into it. And so I have this experience and sometimes people really get it. Sometimes people really respond and say like, I was very deeply aware of like a connective thing that was happening. I don't know what this thing is. I don't know how to what, how to talk about it even, but there is a synergy effect when you have an audience and you have them and you're telling them, you're loving them. Yeah. You know, you're like, you're performing with your love and you're offering it to them. I, it's just so powerful. It's such a magnificent medicinal experience. Yeah, I, I, I love what you're talking about. And I could talk with you forever, but we're just gonna wrap it up for today. And I think it's beautiful, you know, because human connection and I always, I always talk about this, it's the small things. It's when you're living it, when you're living the music, there's something, human beings are, um, I always, is it empathic or empathetic? I think it's empathic. Empathic, human beings are empathic and they sense um, a lot of things that we radiate. And sometimes it's, you know, when you stand there and the music is happening, when you're living it, there's something happening in aura about you that people can sense. Um, so it's beautiful what you just said. It's that connection. When you are feeling something, then you radiate that. Um, it doesn't have to be always big acting. Sometimes it's the small, when you're feeling it, when you're in it. And I, I just love that, that connection. There's something spiritual about it. So um, thank you so much. Um, I hate that we have to wrap it up. Thank you for that. This was such a treasure trove of wonderful topics and information. It's I always love getting a glimpse into the life of someone who does what they truly love and how they got there. It's not always easy, but it is surely rewarding. Be blessed. Always dream big.